Hello and welcome to a special episode of The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, I'm Rob and I'm joined by Kev. How are you doing, Kev? Hi, Rob. Uh, one of the things we wanted to do uh, this season of all seasons, everyone goes, what would uh, George Steinbrenner make of this and what would the boss do? And, 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 and everyone... and. And everyone has opinions on that. And as I've always said on this podcast, I'm relatively new to baseball. So I wasn't uh, following during the Steinbrenner era. And I thought to myself, well, who's the best person who could possibly tell us about this man? And we're very lucky uh, that Marty Appel has agreed to appear with us again. We've already had a a brilliant podcast with him. um, And you will know his name because on our Facebook group, everyone says, can you recommend a book? And the book that everybody mentions, everybody mentions, is Pinstripe Empire um, because it's a it's a masterclass, and we all and we all love it. Um, but not only that, Marty worked under George Steinbrenner for a period of time, so I think we'll be able to give us some so, uh, a unique insight. So, welcome, Marty. Thanks for appearing with us. I love being on with you guys. I am a big fan of all things UK. So the fact that we have baseball in common is great. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for coming on, Marty. Unfortunately, I missed the last one, but I wasn't missing this one when when uh, Rob said we were having you on again. So it's, it's great for you to take the time to come and speak to us. We appreciate it. Sure, my pleasure. Um, so, where, where to begin? I think I think such an interesting man. I think we might as well begin at the very beginning. And by all means, we'd love it if you just take us on a journey of things that you want to know. You know that you think we need to know. But of course. Um, at the end of 1972, at the beginning of 1973, I believe, um, that's when the sale of the New York Yankees for bargain price, if I remember rightly, from uh, from Pinstripe Empire. Uh, but that's when the, the George Steinbrenner team move in and take over the Yankees. What was your first experience of the man? Um, very positive. He was only 42 years old when he put together a group of people to buy the Yankees from the CBS television network, which had owned it for about 10 years, uh, even less. And they bought the team for $10 million and it's worth about $5 billion today. So that was a pretty good deal by any international standards. Um, He said all the right things when he bought the team, which is that he's got a plan, a three-year plan, a five-year plan, to return the Yankees to their glory days and win a world championship because the team had gone without one for a long time. And uh, we all felt very good that uh, this was a guy who wants to win. And that's why we're all fans and that's why we work for the Yankees. So it was wonderful news. And he was a very dynamic guy. Um, The press loved him because he always was very verbal and what was bothering him about the team and issue complaints about the players. The fans loved him because he always gave them quality teams. He would, while other owners would pocket their profits, he would put the profits right back into the team and buy better players. So the players loved him because he paid well and he surrounded them with star players. Uh, The media loved him for reasons we just talked about. So everybody really loved him, except those few of us who worked in the front (laughs) office. Um, But in the end, who cares? You know, we were 50 people and he was a tough demanding boss and became famous for that. 
he also became famous for um, changing managers and general <laughs> managers and pitching coaches very rapidly. If he wasn't getting results, he'd make changes. So there was a period of time when the team was not doing all that well. And they had like nine managers in eight years. Uh, so it was frustrating. A lot of fans who liked the traditionalism of the Yankees and the stability the Yankees always represented were very disheartened by those actions. As he grew older, that sort of receded somewhat. He became more patient. Uh, a former player named Gene Michael had become his general manager and Gene Michael slowed the pace of things. <clears throat> and suddenly they hired Joe Torre in 1996 as manager and they proceeded to win four World Series in the next five years. So suddenly there weren't managing changes. The team took on a sense of stability and ever since then, it's been functional because it's not been impulsive. Um, a lot of people today, when the team is playing below expectations, oh, Mr. Steinbrenner would have fired, uh, you know, Aaron Boone as the manager. And Gene Michael instilled this sense of it's a long game. It's not a short game. It's a long season. It's barely a third over right now. So the Steinbrenner family and mostly his son, Hal, uh, have shown patience and difficult though it might be for impulsive baseball fans who want to win every day. Uh, we haven't seen a change. I suppose if they lost 10 straight starting today, there'd be even a greater call for it and maybe it would happen. But for now, they've won two in a row as we speak. And, you know, maybe temp maybe the impulse to make a change is receding a little bit with each win. Because you were you were there right at the very beginning and you were the youngest PR director uh, in, in the history of the game, uh, I believe. I think I still but am, yeah. You still are, I believe. Yeah, that's right. So I'm, I'm always interested because... When I read, I read your books and I read Bill Madden's books and, and he seems, you know, in sport, there's always a select journalist who always gets the breadcrumbs, who always gets a little bit more. And it seems that, that Bill Madden was, was that chap from what I've read. Yeah. Um, how, in, how, how do you cope as a, as a PR? This is, this is a man, I believe, who, who wants to make sure there's more column inches than, the, than anybody else is getting, any competitors getting. Yeah. It, it, it seems to me that... Um, in a world of social media, it would be it would be a very different setup. But in, in what you you currently had, and, and maybe I'm reading that from the perspective of the journalists who were getting those calls from from Steinbrenner, that maybe they're focusing on their own narrative a little bit more. But how was that for you in terms of the need to get information out on a regular basis? I believe at the start they said that we plan on being was it absentee owners at the very, very start, which... Well, he said, um, I'll stick to building ships, which was his primary business, and I'll leave running baseball to the baseball people. But that didn't last very long. He got the taste <laughs> for it very quickly. It, you raise a funny point because sometimes really inside stories would leak to the press and become sensational headlines the next day. And he would always say to me, 
find out who that leaker is. <laughs> so I would find out, and it was him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you think he played the media pretty well back then for his own benefit, or? He, he liked the publicity. He liked the team getting the back page of the news of the tabloid rather than the Mets, the other New York team. Yeah. So um, he played the game. He learned the system and he was good at it. Yeah. It, it does seem to be that because throughout all, all the reading that I've done, there's a permanent thing where he had to he had to get the final word. Uh, this is, I would expect, uh, a very successful man. And uh, I've read the stories about his dad and the competition he had, but he had to have the final word. And by using the press to do that now, because we have to speak about managerial changes later on. But uh, what was a what was a, what was a, what was a typical day life for you then? What in, in terms of this? It's just that I understand the Yankee fans. They want big money spent. We want big money spent. We want to see the best players in the Yankees. We want, and there's that romantic side of things as a fan. But the day to day, my view, Shay, it sounds like my idea of hell. I'll be honest, it sounded, you know, I would love to work for a team like this, but I think. I would end up sobbing in a car park by, by <laughs> mid-morning coffee. Um, so I always admire anyone who certainly worked under the, the beginning of that era. What, what, was, what was that like on a typical day? I'm smiling because I think of the people who ask me, did you ever spend time with him one-on-one? -on -one? Was there ever a time when, you know, it was just called you in to discuss things with you? And the answer to that was like five times a day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> he was always man manipulating press coverage and playing one against the other. And let's give this to the Daily News and we'll give that one to the New York Post. And so it was a, it was a carnival. Yeah. Um, but it was at the same time exhilarating and fun, frustrating. And when I came to realize his importance and his significance in the scheme of American sports, well, then I knew I was kind of sitting in on history. Yeah. You know, that each meeting I was having with him was of some consequence. Yeah, front row seat for for yeah. that kind of stuff going on. I suppose it was a call it the Bronx Zoo. Yeah, the Bronx um, Zoo. Yeah. I don't know how that term plays in the UK. But there is, in fact, a Bronx Zoo yeah. in the borough in which the Yankees play, the Bronx, which is a world-class zoo. It's a wonderful place. But um, it was Sparky Lyle, one of the players of that era, who wrote yeah. a book about his time there and called it the Bronx Zoo. And to this day, that resonates. Do you think like, the game has changed so much, and more so than even just the game has changed, but you know, kind of workers' rights have changed and stuff like that. And now he probably wouldn't be able to get away with the kind of way he, he managed the team back then in the modern era. Or do you I think... think he would? I think he would find a way. I think he would, in a sense, have a stronger voice in the game than the commissioner of baseball does. Yeah. There's a lot about baseball today that traditional fans do not like. Yeah. Um, a lot of the strategy has gone out of the game. Hitting home runs has become too easy. And the game has sort of evolved into 100 mile an hour pitches, pitchers, yeah. a lot of walks, a lot of strikeouts, a lot of home runs. 
and the removal of a lot of strategy of moving the runners along yeah. base by base. So a lot of people are discontent about that. And I think he would have felt that discontent and advocated for change that would have kind of reverted baseball to greater strategy era. I think we'd like some of that. Yeah, I've been watching baseball since the late 90s. Um, so I've kind of kind of grown up through the very successful period of the Yankees, but I must admit I wasn't actually a Yankees fan at that point. I was more of just a general baseball fan. Um, but I do think the game has, yeah, it's gotten worse. Um, there's not as much balls in play. There's not as much um, small ball being played. And I think it is a, a negative I think, you know, the defensive shifts and stuff like that have changed the game in a in a negative way for me. I, I don't think it's as fun to watch. Too, yeah. Now, yeah. the games, not so many are night games. They start at midnight or one o'clock your time. Do you watch yeah. them? Do you stay up? Not so much anymore. I tend to I tend to watch the, the, the games the next day, the condensed games. Um, we do love a day game, but when I was younger and I didn't have kids and stuff like that, I used to stay up and watch them. I used to fall asleep and wake up with a laptop in my bed because I've been watching the game on my laptop and fell asleep. But yeah, um, these days I, I just, yeah, I don't have the energy to stay up oh, that way anymore. Ask, how do you watch them? What network? MLB TV. MLB on the, TV. Yeah. On, all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. So on the, it's on the app, we all pay a subscription and then we can watch. It's great value in all fairness. You can watch every game that you want and we get the condensed. Yeah. Um, so we, we, we've had a lot of Sunday night games. So they you know, lunchtime starts over there. So we get them around about six six o'clock here. Um, it has to be said that pretty much every one of them they played pretty poorly. Oh, yeah. you, sit, you sit down with your kids and go, "Let me introduce you to, to the Yankees." And then the games are really slow and they're, and they're swinging, missing an awful lot. And the kids after about fifteen minutes go, "Thanks, Dad." Uh, all right. <laughs> yeah. I think they even wash my car instead of watching some of these games. It has to be said, but. Um, um, but I mean, Steinbrenner sport was always something. He was a football coach, if I remember rightly. He was because when we talk about running between bases, there was a time when he wanted to change the lineup so they were faster, the the, the faster running between the bases. He, you know, he was actually involved in the the actual gameplay. And um, how many times have we complained on our podcast, Kev, about how slow we are between the bases? Yeah. So when I'm reading this in Madden's book, thinking he recognised this too early they might not have been able to hit actually but actually but he, he recognized the run and that's that's a great thing because you look at what's coming down from the commissioner's office um and the owners they're a bit complicit and i like the idea of having an owner who would almost step on the commissioner's toes and uh, and you worked in for the commissioner for the commission's office as well if i remember right anyway very come um and I, how how often did did you find yourself thinking he's going to get in trouble for that? He's just he's he and and we'll come later on to the fact he does get in trouble <laughs> later on in his story quite a lot of trouble. Um, but were there, were there really times you're like, or you're just enjoying watching someone push the envelope to to such a degree to see what we could get away with? Well, in the moment, it's tense and it can be frustrating. I remember um, as we're talking about frustration with, with that. Uh, there were times and every team experiences when you think the call, the umpire calls are going against you. Not intentionally, but you just think he, he keeps blowing the call. These are bad umpires. And it's normal for a fan to think that. But for an owner to issue a statement at the end of a game 
about the inferior quality of this group of umpires <laughs> and how we were the New York Yankees and we deserve more competent umpires. Well, that certainly got him in trouble. And it certainly compromised my credibility by issuing such a statement, which I had to do. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there were moments. And as we talk, they come back. <laughs> I can imagine you're sat in the office and the phone goes. And you know it's inevitable. But he struck me as somebody who said, put this in the statement. This, these are the words. This is exactly what I want you to yeah. put out there. Um, how much, as, as a PR director, uh, and as a great writer anyway, do you think, uh, I, I just want to adjust that. You know, there's the, 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 the film, the, the screenwriter Aaron Sorkin always says to his actors, you do not change a word of my script. You know, that's, that's the deal that you're not allowed to do that. What, what was that experience like? Firstly, does the heart, you know, does the heart sink when the phone goes and you're like, well, you know, here, here we go again. Um, and how much did you, could you, would he would take your advice? Was there various levels of anger? So if he feels that, if you felt there was an injustice, he really wanted to drive that home. He never took my advice, not once. <laughs> <laughs> the the stood on their own, the quotes stood on their own, and he was prepared to take the penalty for them, which were frequent. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, I, I watched, um, I managed to catch the Bronx's Burning series, which I know you, you were part of that series. Was that pretty accurate of the way things were back then? Yes, it was a very well done series. It was on ESPN over seven or eight nights, I think. Yeah. And I was a an advisor. I think they called it an advising producer. But also, <clears throat> there was a scene in which I got to play myself 30 years yeah. younger. So wow. I never have an experience like that. Wardrobe dressed me in clothing that looked like it was from the 70s. And I sat at the dais at a major press conference playing myself 30 years younger. It was a great thing. Yeah, that's a cool experience. That is a very cool experience. I, love, I mean, I, I love the book. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen the TV series. But I think that brings back, to, because there are, there are certain names that I associate with George Steinbrenner. And there's one I'd really like to, to focus on, and that's Billy Martin. <laughs> Had to be. Yes. Um, because this seems like the most unusual relationship in sport in terms of tempestuous would be quite the understatement for it. Um, how, what, why, what was it about that relationship that kept, I mean, it kept repeating itself. And I remember reading about Bob Lemon and, and what happened to him at uh, uh, one of Billy's returns and things like that. What was that? And, and how did that convey itself in the city of New York as well? Was that, it's almost like the airing of dirty laundry. I have the saying in the UK, I don't know if you have ever you don't air your dirty laundry in public. Um, and it felt very much like that. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? There was so much going on in that era and that relationship. Billy Martin had been a Yankee player in the 50s. A good player, not a great player, uh, but he had a tendency to get in trouble. He was getting into bar fights. He saw himself, if you're a fan of American Western movies from the 40s and the 50s, he saw himself as like an old West gunslinger looking for the next saloon fight. He also developed a drinking problem, which today would be recognized as an illness, as a disease, alcoholism. 
Back then it wasn't. And he would get into a lot of fights and he would get into a lot of bad situations, largely due to his drinking. And some of it overlap ball games where he'd show up wearing dark sunglasses and you know, uh-oh, this yeah. is not a good day. Um, Mr. Steinbrenner want, coveted him, wanted him to be the manager because he'd been, quote, in exile for 20 years um, after he got into a fight at a nightclub in New York as a player and got traded. And it broke his heart that he wasn't a Yankee anymore. And he would always speak about someday I'd love to manage the Yankees. And that touched George Steinbrenner's emotions. And at an opportunity in 1975, he brought him back. Billy tended to see himself as more influential in decisions than simply being a manager. He wanted more of a voice in the whole composition of the roster. And so he would butt heads with the boss, with Mr. Steinbrenner and say things that got him in trouble. And when you get in trouble with the boss, bye-bye. <laughs> yeah. So he was actually hired and fired five times. It's crazy. Unprecedented that one man would yeah. manage the same team so many times. Um, but he'd get fired and then Mr. Steinbrenner would feel sad and guilty about it because Billy would play on the public sympathy all I ever wanted to do was manage the Yankees. <laughs> so um, it became an ongoing soap drama, soap opera in New York. And when, uh, Casey Stengel, when Casey Stengel traded Billy Martin, was it to Kansas? Kansas City, yes. Yeah. Um, and and, and I, I always wonder, because I was reading in Bill Pennington's book, and you always think to yourself, because he seemed like from Oakland, he's this this... This, this fighter from the from the other coast who's come over to New York, and yet it's almost like they're playing off each other for the affection of New York City. And I I, and I, I often wondered if if George Steinbrenner would have been better off going. Well, I'm going to let you go on this one time, but there was a there was more of them an emotional bond than any you know because of the the baggage that Billy Martin seemed to carry with him. And it's almost like he was trying to find a redemptive arc that just couldn't be that couldn't be achieved. It, um, <clears throat> it carried through to his death. Billy Martin died at a young age in a car crash on Christmas Day uh, after a day of drinking, Christmas morning. Mm -hmm. And um, Mr. Steinbrenner arranged for Billy to be buried next to Babe Ruth, yeah. wow. cemetery north of New York City. So that affection was always there and that willingness to reach out and go the extra mile for poor Billy Martin was always there. That's good to hear. I mean, I think it was quite clear that Billy Martin was quite a volatile character, but I think there was a third person in the relationship in the, the triangle, which would be Reggie Jackson, of course. And I think that obviously was the kind of the spark for a lot of the problems I think that happened with them. Would that be correct? Reggie Jackson was a terrific player, but hard to manage. Big ego <laughs> wanted to sort of set his own course. And Billy didn't want him. Billy yeah. thought he could win without Reggie Jackson. Mr. Steinbrenner coveted Reggie Jackson, who was the 
best available player at the time on the free agent market. So he brought in Reggie, Billy didn't like that. The intention was Billy was Reggie would bat fourth in the lineup, which is the power position. Yeah. And Billy wouldn't hit him fourth. He would hit him sixth. He would hit him seventh. <clears throat> so um, that created friction between Reggie and Mr. Steinbrenner and Billy Martin. And inevitably it rolled into the newspapers and became the basis of those Bronx Zoo years. Yeah. No, it's okay. I mean, it just, I think when, you know, I read a fair bit about the history of, of New York back then, and it was a pretty, a pretty crazy time for the city. The city was almost obviously almost going bankrupt and crime was at an all time high. And it kind of mirrors what was going on, the madness that was going on at the Yankees at the same time. It kind of, it kind of seems to all fit together in my mind. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, it was it was interesting to watch the program, and I think that the, the parts were pretty well portrayed by the guys who played them. Um, but yeah, it looked like it looked like every day, or possibly not every day, but every week there was another drama coming along or something else that was going to cause more friction. Well, the uh, a player I was very close to and wrote a book with and later about was Thurman Munson, who was the captain yeah. of the team, and captain. He, he wasn't a fan of Reggie Jackson either, because no sooner did Reggie arrive on the scene than he questioned Munson's leadership ability, yeah. setting most of the team on Munson's side and against Reggie. So it made for a very uncomfortable clubhouse and travel arrangements, and all of that lended itself to those Bronx Zoo years. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, the straw that stirs the, uh, stirs the drink, isn't it? There's that, that particular... Um... Once again, another leak to the press, just to, <laughs> just to keep things ticking over. You're I'm very uh, good, Rob, with your memory on these things. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, and yet, you know, my, my wife tells me I don't remember anything useful, but I, I, I stand by. <laughs> but there, there are moments I think you always end up with sport, aren't you? And I think because that period of time was so unusual, I look at, and I'm correct me if I'm wrong, I look at someone like Yogi Berra as, as a consistency and a man who was pushed who was dragged into it and pushed out in the, in, in the same way. Um, how, how, what was that relationship like in terms of, because I'm, he, he's somebody I don't know much about. I know there's a, there's a book I'm planning on reading, starting to read next week about him, but obviously he left to go to the, the Mets yes, yeah. um, uh, for a while there. How was, how did the Yankee fans react to that? Because he strikes me as somebody, if Billy Martin connected with the fans, Yogi Berra was just a little bit more because he was a great, great player by all accounts. He was a great player and he was a beloved player during his career and after his career. And I might add that next week, a US postage stamp with Yogi Berra on it is being issued. Wow. It's quite an honor. Not yeah, yeah. Many athletes get postage stamps. Yogi, who died five or six years ago, uh, had this great nickname, Yogi. His name was Larry Berra, but in youth baseball, he used to sit, they didn't have dugouts, he would sit in front of the bench with his legs folded like, and somebody said he's sitting there like a yoga, in a yoga position, and it became Yogi Berra forever. You know, I always thought it was because of the Yogi Bear thing. I just assumed uh, the Yogi Bear thing, 
Um, he got ripped off on the Yogi Berra. Ah, so Yogi Berra was named after Yogi Berra. Yeah, and brilliant. they never acknowledged it. They denied it, and they never paid Yogi for it. That's brilliant. But that's the way that works. Because um, you're involved in the museum. Are you involved with his family? Yeah, with the... I was on the board of directors. They created a Yogi Berra Museum about 25 minutes outside of New York, which was a tribute to his exemplary life. He was the only baseball player at D-Day. He landed at Norman. Wow. Um, so many high moral decisions he made in his life. He was a simple man. He only had a fifth grade education, but he was born with the gift of great wisdom, innate wisdom. And if he felt something was an injustice, he would speak up about it, and he was invariably followed and believed, and he was right. So um, people greatly admired him. And of course, he had his turn twice to be Yankee manager. Yeah. And as with all managers, really, he got fired twice. <laughs> but the second time by Mr. Steinbrenner, um, he never returned to Yankee Stadium for like 18 years because of a grudge he held against Steinbrenner for not telling him in person, but dispatching an underling to tell him he was fired. So that was yeah. a man of character and high principle. He is uh, one of my all time favorite Yankees. His personality was just phenomenal. Obviously the yogiisms, which he's quite famous for as well, are, yeah. are superb, but he was just, he just exuded everything about being a great person and a great Yankee. And it must have been quite difficult for the Yankees fans at the time to see one of their all-time greats um, shunning the club because of uh, Mr. Steinbrenner. So how did how did that play out in the fans? Was there a bit of a revolt on, um, towards him yeah, amongst it, the fans? It hurt Mr. Steinbrenner more than anybody because when he bought the team, he was buying that tradition and that heritage and the connection to all the great names. Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra. And here Yogi shunned him for 18 years. Wow. Finally, finally, a local radio host convinced him to make peace with Yogi and to go to Yogi's museum and shake hands and make things right. So that was right. kind of a historic night in New York sports because that was humbling for Mr. Steinbrenner to go to Yogi's museum yeah. and extend an olive branch. But he wanted Yogi back and Yogi from that day forward was always a presence at the stadium, often ceremonial, throw out a first pitch and um, became even more beloved in that stage of his life. Yeah, I definitely, from my point of view, I, I kind of loved the fact he was always around and there's no team in sports in the world that does honours their players, the past players, better than the Yankees, in my opinion. I've never seen a team that does it so well. And right. it's been great. It's great to see Yogi always being part of that. And it was it was very sad um, when he passed a few years ago. You know, it was felt it was felt by a lot of us over this side of the Atlantic who, you know, obviously we never seen him play, but we just loved his personality and loved the fact that he was a a Yankees hero. Um, he was so durable, also. Um, he would play, I mean, catcher is a very demanding, difficult yeah. position, 
The season was 154 games long then, and he'd play 150 games catching yeah. in both a, both games of a doubleheader. <coughs> Excuse me. So today you look at guys taking a day off after a night game. Mm. It's like Yogi would play a doubleheader after a night game. <laughs> yeah. The, the, iconic, the iconic image of him that sticks in my head is when he jumps on Don Larson. Yes. After the part, perfect. I just love that photograph. It's, it's British. Actually, I adapt to my wall behind me. <laughs> but I, I believe that, um, that that George Steinbrenner also had a misunderstanding with Joe DiMaggio, which um, caused a bit of animosity for a while as well. Was it misunderstanding to do with tickets or something? Uh, there was a ticket screw up. I don't think Joe DiMaggio ever held that against George Steinbrenner. Um, DiMaggio was very fussy about his image and the way he was presented. And when Mickey Mantle retired, he was at the peak of his popularity and his fans were much younger. And the first old timers day that the two of them were both present as old timers, DiMaggio was introduced, I'm sorry, Mickey was introduced next to last and then DiMaggio was last. So this gets theatrical. This is all about yeah. producing a Broadway show. So the cheers for Mickey overwhelmed DiMaggio's introduction. Uh. We in the PR department said, you know what? That's not fair to DiMaggio. Next year, let's introduce DiMaggio next to last, get his full applause, and then Mickey. Well, that did not go over well with Joe DiMaggio. Uh, the billing is important. And yeah. if he was introduced next to last, he took it as a personal affront. Wow. And um, he said he wasn't ever coming back again. <laughs> oh, my God. That was kind of on me and my department. It had nothing to do with Mr. Steinbrenner. Okay. In fact, it was before the Steinbrenner family owned the team. So uh, we got out of it. We promised him he'd be introduced last. And he, it was important to him. He attended, he retired in 1951 and he only missed one old timers day till he died in 1999. Wow. So you can do the math and uh, he never missed except for one time for a health reason. Yeah. He was a very private person. I think Joe DiMaggio wasn't, he wasn't kind of front and center or in the limelight. Yeah, that's a great story. Thanks for sharing that with us. And I'm seeing Mickey Mantle on your wall, Kevin. Yeah, he's my he's my all time Yankees hero. I'm afraid that's pretty well known. Good choice. Oh. Yeah, at the London series you were talking about, I had a, a number seven shirt on, and um, yeah, I was pulled over by many American people and high fived for for my shirt. Good. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that Steinbrenner did is he goes through the managers is that he seems to reallocate, reallocate people to, to other roles, to other scouting roles. That, that Although they leave the position of head coach, they they seem to go elsewhere within the organisation. I think that's what made the Yogi one quite quite surprising. No, I'm, after the reconciliation, he created a job as special advisor for Yogi with a salary. And as you noted earlier, a guy named Bob Lemon had been manager after one of Billy Martin's firings. Everybody loved Lem, but there came a time when Lem got fired, Billy was rehired, and he took care of Lemon. 
he made sure he became a special advisor with a salary as well. It's it's, it's a fascinating way because there there is such, there's an honor there's there's a there seems like the most inevitable part of that job at that time is that you were going to get fired at some point before you actually had a chance to do it. But yes. there was a way of encouraging people to continue, and I think that that brings me on to to, uh, to Gene Michael, because actually his his role without this story and. Um, this, I mean, I think there's lots of positives and we'd love to talk about the, the, the spring training ground you've got in your background and explain that to everyone later on. But uh, in, terms of, in terms of stick, do you, do you feel that he was, because we obviously have the suspension for the, for the uh, Dave Winfield uh, and it was the, the, the private investigator, which if you can tell, tell us about that in a moment, that would be fantastic. Um, but, but then you've got this, and it, it just feels like this roller coaster. And as you say earlier, Gene Michael just seems to... to to calm things down it's at the flip of a flip of a coin so what what do you remember about that Dave Winfield era and and, and what led us because obviously Gene Michael was general manager and, and, and manager it, it just when I was reading this it just feels like it's such a turbulent period of time and all of a sudden just well the Dave Winfield Dave Winfield was an enormously talented player who made a lot of money and even established a Dave Winfield foundation to do good deeds um Built into the contract, you'd say the Dave's agent was clever, but actually it was just out there and Mr. Steinbrenner didn't understand it. So built into the contract was an annual contribution to the foundation, but into his salary was a automatic increase each year based on what Mr. Steinbrenner thought was simple interest, but it was compound interest, and that compounded the contract enormously. So he wound up sort of taking it out on the foundation by claiming it was up to no good and that he was gonna withhold the contribution. Believe me, this has a lot of twists and turns. <laughs> anyway, they, so they were at war almost from the start. And uh, Mr. Steinbrenner then foolishly hires some lowlife to go dig up dirt on, on Dave Winfield to discredit the foundation, which none was found. And the very fact that he hired this reckless gambler character to dig up dirt, it would be like hiring Rudy Giuliani to dig up dirt on Joe Biden's son. <laughs> there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, there was this war between Winfield and Steinbrenner, and Steinbrenner wound up being suspended, um, many thought forever, for engaging in this kind of conduct. Uh, as it turned out, it was during that suspension that Gene Michael stabilized the team took leadership, appointed leadership on him by himself and brought what's still going on today into an era of a very... Oh, I think we're having a lot of technical issues out. Which Mr. Steinbrenner, coinciding with that was Mr. Steinbrenner was aging. He wasn't as impetuous as he had been at first. And so uh, the result was all good for the Yankees it led to that era starting in the mid nineties when they were just good, 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 good every year led by their captain, Derek Jeter and their great closer, 
Mariano, Mariano. Rivera. The 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 Harry Shapiro that's, that was the private investigator's name if I remember right that that just seems like such a poor judgment from a man yeah. who's leading such a huge organization and I know when he it was a lifetime suspension and you know he accepted it uh, without kind of understanding the reality behind it but do you think something like that shakes a great powerful man I'm not I'm not suggesting that there are other powerful men who have been caught out with things that haven't been shaken by this but do you do you think that that in itself was a mess was was the final lesson to learn because he's done so many positive things and is that would you would you say that was his lowest point in his in his tenureship of the yankees yeah it would be so he he mr steinbrenner hired this ne'er-do-well youngster with a gambling problem who promised him he could get dirt on dave winfield and it would be like the head of Ford Motor Company hiring some 25-year-old guy with a gambling and a drinking problem to go and dig out dirt on the head of uh, General Motors or Chrysler. Yeah. It's just like, no, this isn't the way CEOs behave. Yeah. So there are so many positives. And I think that's, and it's very easy because of the books that I've read and I'm not being around at the time. What, what do you think is the great, George Steinbrenner legacy? Is it the free agency? Is it the, the Tampa uh, setup? What, what, what are the things that you think people will be looking back most fondly of George Steinbrenner's time? Well, the whole era, which extends to his son's stewardship now, will be one of enormous success, making the playoffs virtually every year with an occasional miss. Uh, and putting profits into the team, not into their pockets. And despite doing that, of course, the value of the team just soared tremendously to like billions of dollars. So uh, the legacy is he was an unconventional owner, but if you follow his example, uh, it leads to success. And really, in the end, that's what the fans want. Players are happy. The media is happy. Opposing teams are happy because when the Yankees come to town, they sell out their ballparks. So it's like all good, even if you have to endure some of the uh, bumps in the road. And it seems strange with the salary cap and the redistribution of funds amongst the other teams now that he, you know, he ended up agreeing to and all these. His legacy will live on to the benefit of of baseball, not just the New York Yankees, but actually there was, and, and, and part of, I think, the fan base frustration, I don't know if you feel it's over there, is that the salary cap is, you look at what the Dodgers are doing, and, and I think this is where it stems from, that people would go, George would just go, George would just blow that out of the water, and George would, if it needed to be done, it, it would be done. And I think, although um, Hal Steinbrenner's stewardship is safe and, and, and comfortable, I think people want that, and that the Garrett Cole signing was a prime example of when everyone went, yes, the, the evil empire are back. Here we go. And then exactly. O'Gall comes in, you know, that's nice. Thanks. But <laughs> if, um, if the family ever sells and the buyer, the new owner, doesn't achieve success and settles into mediocrity, that legacy of George Steinbrenner will grow even more for what yeah. he accomplished in his own, during his ownership. Do you know, I kind of get the feeling Hal's too nice. 
he's he's not he's too nice. He's like where his dad was just like, We're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. Whereas Hal kind of takes that more sort of reserved approach and you know, we're looking at this and we're trying to do that. You don't need to spend big to win a championship and stuff, whereas George is like, We're the Yankees, we'll do what we need to do and anything but a World Series is failure. Do you, do you kind of buy it? Do you think that's true or? Well, we don't really know what goes on in private conversations between him and Brian Cashman as general manager or others. Uh, but certainly as a public figure, he's much more reserved and quieter yeah. and not bombastic as his father was, which he acknowledges and is clear to everyone. I wonder what George Steinbrenner what what Major League Baseball would look like, the George Steinbrenner that you came across in 1973, what Major League Baseball would look like now with that George Steinbrenner in it? Um, it'll be an interesting, it'll be, if you, yeah. could, if you could do a virtual reality setup and see how that would, because I look at Rob Manfred and yeah, he doesn't want... strike me as the strongest commissioner. <laughs> and if you've got an owner who's willing to prod and prod and prod, I think that would make for some very explosive and interesting times for us all. It is interesting that it's the Steinbrenner presence has been felt in baseball since 1973. <clears throat> A lot of new owners have come along in that time, but none of them have really sought to imitate George Steinbrenner's business model. They still leave it to their general managers and their director of player personnel to run the team and they care about their profits and they care about their partners, but they don't take a lead role, with, even in other sports. I mean, Mark Cuban, who owns the yeah. Dallas Mavericks might be an exception. Yeah. But as much as Mr. Steinbrenner changed the definition of being an owner, others did not follow, um, even though it was a ticket to fame <laughs> yeah. newspapers every day yeah i i think i would love to have seen how the boss went against rob manfred i doubt team fans of other teams would agree but i think george steinbrenner was good for baseball and i think it was important for baseball that the yankees were doing what they were doing buying the big free agents and and keeping the money flowing through the game and i think now we're kind of i don't know the game seems less interesting without him. I don't know if that's a fair sort of, from my point of view, I think it's less interesting without him. Possibly a bit calmer than it was before, um, but certainly there's not as much interesting stuff going on, certainly around about the Yankees anyway, as there used to be. I used to love the hot stove season. I absolutely loved it because you knew that the Yankees would be linked with all the big free agents and they would be in on everyone. And you were just like, who are we going to get? Who are we going to get? Whereas now the hot stove season doesn't even get hot. You know, things are running on into January and February before the big names are coming off the market. And it's just, it's kind of taken that away from, there's kind of, I don't know, the sport's just changed so much. And I think, um, you know, nothing happens very quickly anymore, which I find quite frustrating as a fan. Is there a free agency system in the Premier League? No, no. Well, we, no. yeah, not, not to the same degree. Yeah, so basically um, some players will get to, to free agency, but um, only if they run their contract down. Most times it's a, a transfer fee and they move for, for big money. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I, I used to love that sort of 
part of the year, not just from a Yankees point of view, but just to see where the big players were going to go. And when you got to the winter meetings, you knew that things were going to get start moving. And now the kind of winter meetings come and pass and there's still nothing happening and the big guys are still unsigned. And you're like, please just get it going. And it's hard when you're doing a podcast in the winter and nothing's happening as well. <laughs> <Really> <laughs> Which doesn't help. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot of older fans, and I'm one of them, that know this isn't the game we grew up with. Yeah like to see it back. I'm also someone who understands the need to grow the game to new generations. And if something appeals to them and is attractive to them, I may not like it, but I'm okay with it. <clears throat> but what we're going through right now with the overshifts to reduce hits, the increase in home runs and 100 mile an hour relief pitchers and all the walks and strikeouts, it's not a game built on a lot of high strategy. And so I miss that a lot. And people my age, we all talk about that. Yeah, I, I get kind of frustrated when people, you know, they, they say the chicks dig the long ball and stuff like that. But as a fan of the game, it's more interesting when the ball's in play. We want to see the ball in play. We want to see plays developing. We want to see running. We want to see, you know, great defensive plays and all that kind of stuff. So I, I'm completely in agreement. I. I can think the game is is going in the wrong direction at the moment, and I hope they can do something to to get it back to the way it used to be. Yeah, I think um, I think the change to the uh, to the ball, the sticky stuff on the ball. We'll wait and see what happens. <laughs> we'll wait and see what happens with that. Well, I mean, even something like that. Now they're going to crack down on pitchers using some sticky substance, which they may take off their jersey or something to get a better grip on the ball. And that's gonna to lead to suspensions and penalties. When baseball itself acknowledged that it changed the composition of the baseball to make it less lively a year ago. So if baseball acknowledges that it's participating in altering the way the game is played, um, you know, how can they penalize pitchers for getting yeah. a better grip on the ball? I quite liked um, Rondon's comments about that. Did you see that? He said um, they're going to suspend us for sticky stuff on the ball, yet they let the Houston Astros away with all their cheating and did nothing. Yeah, and there were really yeah. not many penalties imposed on the Houston Astros, including a lot of people thought they should have been stripped of their championship trophy. Yeah. yeah. I'm in jail. Yeah, <laughs> you won't get any disagreement here. <laughs> Just yes. <laughs> um, we, we, we've kept you for a long time, Martin. I really appreciate it. But I, if I could think of a, a one, just one last thing, uh, I'm a big fan of the West Wing, and they always talk about the press secretary leaves a note in in a jacket to the next person who follows them to give them some to give the, the person who follows them some advice about about the job. What was the, what would what would have been the thing that you told? Because uh, I've got is it is it Mickey Morabito? Was that that followed you there? Just my successor, yes. What what did you have what a conversation? Um, I think maybe not immediately because it didn't occur to me immediately. But I think I would say it doesn't matter how frustrating your day is. The overall good of the team is what we're dealing with. So um, as I began by saying, the press loved them, the fans loved them, the players loved them, the opposing team owners loved them. For those of us in the front office of which we were maybe 50, who cares? 
you know, deal with it and think of the bigger picture. That's what I would have told Mickey Moravito. Fantastic. Brilliant. Fantastic. Marcy, it's been an it's been an absolute pleasure, and we're we're really grateful that you could you could join us again. And um, uh, I don't think anybody tells anyone about the Yankees better than you do. And I, and I know uh, the 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 listeners that we have and the and the people who engage with us on our Facebook group uh, will be delighted to hear this. And I say they're big they're big big fans uh, of your work. So thank you for your time and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. But we really do appreciate it. And yeah. you enjoy your evening, and I always enjoy talking to you guys. I'm a big fan of what you do and everything British. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Marty. I can only echo what, what Rob has said. Thank you. Appreciate Bye it. Now. Thank Cheers. you.